This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the Wednesday Buckeye Talk. It's Oregon Week. Doug, Nathan, Stephen, try the tech 614 350 3315. Flying fast and furious. Talked with on Tuesday Ryan Day, Carrie Combs, Chris Olave, Cody Simon. Is that it? Did I get it all right? I think I got it right. Here's what I would like to do. I was just telling Nathan and Stephen, maybe this is what we'll fall into for the Wednesday pod. I might get repetitive, though. We'll do the 10 most interesting Buckeyes for the Oregon game, mostly based off what we talked about today, because we don't want to repeat ourselves. We do want to look ahead, but we also want to cover the important things that Ryan Day and Kerry Combs and other people said about these guys from the game against Minnesota. So we're going to start with that. We're going to hit 10 interesting Buckeyes that matter right now to give you guys the goods. And we're going to start with Denzel Burke. I'm not necessarily putting this in order of importance, I would say, but maybe in order of interest, because man, this guy's interesting. And Nathan, he started at cornerback as a true freshman at Ohio state which Kerry Combs admitted on Tuesday is something that he thought he'd never have to do. We know why he had to do it. What are we thinking? Did we, what did we learn about Denzel Burke against Minnesota? And what does it, how does it get applied to the rest of this year? Well, I think we saw, he, he had very much had in some ways a freshman game, right? I mean, he's still making some of the lapses that you expect to see from a freshman. What I thought we also saw though, was the upside that, has him on the field right now to begin with. And I, we definitely got the impression today that regardless of what happened in that game, that Kerry Combs has a lot of confidence in Burke. Like, even as you said, almost like a surprising amount of confidence for himself that he is that confident in Burke at this, because at this time a year ago, well, not quite this time because the season was delayed, but 11 months ago uh, we, or, or 10, when we were asking like, why aren't you guys playing more young defensive backs he was saying, because I can't trust him, but he trusts Denzel Burke. He's seen something since the spring that he has a lot of trust in Denzel Burke. I thought you saw flashes of that on the field of Minnesota. Steven, the theme, especially when talking about the defense from what Kerry Combs and Ryan Day said on Tuesday was some good, some bad, some good, some bad. That was what they said about everything. But it also definitely a, a applied to Denzel Burke, which is sort of what Nathan was saying. But I understand why they can grab onto the good and assume over time with more experience, you get more good and less bad. 
I think because you just expected the bad to happen. You expected him to get some pass interference calls, which he did. You expected Minnesota to attack him, as he said, because he's a true freshman. And if you're an offensive coordinator, you're going to search out the true freshman cornerback and try to attack him, which they did time after time. What you can expect is the three pass breakups that he had and also making some crucial plays. He almost had the interception as well. That stuff you don't know if a true freshman is going to do until you throw him out there to the wolves and he goes out there and do it. So it's almost easier to latch on to that with the understanding that you know you're going to have to coach him up a little bit because there are some things that as a true freshman, he's going to make some mistakes. But as Kerry Combs said a year ago, part of the reason he doesn't want to put true freshmen out there at cornerback is because when you make mistakes at corner, it can equal six points a lot of the times. And most for most of the night, whatever mistakes Denzel was making, they weren't leading to you know big plays in the passing game for Minnesota. In Kerry Combs' defense, the thing that he said last year was not, well, he's just a freshman, so I'm dismissing him. He was saying about all those young guys, we just haven't seen it. We didn't get to have a spring. We didn't get to have a preseason, really. We don't know. We can't trust him because we don't know it. This year, when they've talked about him and they've talked about even other guys, but especially as it relates to Denzel Burke, you hear a lot of, boy, he's been getting right in there with Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson every day in practice and going nose to nose with him. And I think that is, I mean, even going back to the spring, I feel like not only did he play well, but they actually had data to back it up the way they did not feel like they had data to back up whether those guys were good last year. They certainly they didn't quite say this is what happens when you come in for spring football, but they sure talked about how good he looked in spring. They talked about how good he looked in the preseason. And the thing that Kerry Combs latched onto both with Burke and Ryan Watts is he said they fought right that they they competed at a high level. They busted their butts, which you can live with. You don't get you don't get down when you get beat. But I do think he's here to stay. And. Kerry Combs. Likes to rotate corners. I think, I think he prefers to rotate corners if he has enough guys. And maybe they would have gotten here anyway, given what Denzel Burke did in the spring and in August. But now that they saw it on the field, Stephen, they are being very circumspect with injuries. Ryan Day is at the point of basically like, that's what the status report is for late in the week. We're just not even acknowledging anything about injuries before that. I just wish I wish people would ask about injuries without prefacing the question. I know you're not going to answer this question about injuries, but here's a question about injury. It's like, just make him be the one to tell you that he's not going to say it. No, there's a time for that. I think in a, in like a one-on-one when you're hanging out setting, there's a way that you can preface questions to not feel somewhat, to not put somebody on the spot because then if you give him a little out, but then you can massage your out. It's like, ah, you know, I, I know this status report. And then he says no. And then you can follow up with like four more questions that are half questions and get to your point. But in a press conference setting, when you have your one question, do not provide the out to the question in the question itself. I agree, Nate. My assumption would be if Seven Banks and Cam Brown are both healthy and both playing, Denzel Burke will be part of a, at the very least, three-man cornerback rotation, which is what they did back in the day when Kerry Combs was here the first time around. And if he feels the same way about Ryan Watts, it'll be a four-man cornerback rotation. Just the way they talked about Denzel Burke, and basically it's the same for Ryan Watts, who's a second-year guy as opposed to a first-two guy but not very experienced. Steven, they didn't just play Denzel Burke because they had to. It felt like he also earned that. And I, I just I just think that's here to stay. And that's the kind of thing that we're looking to take away from week one. What was a in the moment one time thing 
and what was a legitimate real thing. And I think Denzel Burke playing real snaps is real. I think you can make the argument that either him or Ryan Watts was third and, or I mean, it was just kind of neck and neck. And then how they performed on, on Thursday kind of put Denzel Burke over the top because he was just better than Ryan Watts was. He made a few more plays than he did, which is an interesting place for him to be, given that he wasn't playing cornerback until he got here. And then also, when you look at that 2021 recruiting class, I don't know if anybody would have pointed to him first if we had asked the question, hey, there's going to be a true freshman who has to start against Minnesota. Which one you picking? I don't he wouldn't have come up. This isn't fair to Cam Brown, but I'm I'm not sure as I'm sitting here today that that Watts and uh, Burke aren't second and third. We just don't know yet. Brown still know. hasn't really played. Brown has never played outside cornerback in a real way for this team. He was the nickelback last year, so he wasn't in. He wasn't rotating on an outside spot last year, even with Seven Banks, who was a first-time starter last year. And I, again, this is not a criticism of Cam Brown. It's just because I legitimately he's had a rough go of it with the injuries but we don't know we haven't actually seen him get out there and really play this and I think he is still in a position unfortunately no fault of his own it's the injuries but he's in a position where he's got to come back and prove that he is one of the two best cornerbacks on this team no we don't but he also flashed a lot in practice and his name was coming up a lot as well now Denzel Burke may be more because he's a true freshman so you hear it more but I mean there is a lot of positivity that came out from Ken Brown from fall camp to be fair and in the end we all agree Burke is here to stay yeah. either as the second corner, as the third corner in rotation, but this was not a holy moly. We have two corners out. We have to play the true freshman, but then he's going to be a backup. And he's not going to play anymore. We, we think he's going to, and he played pretty significantly the most snaps among corners, according to PFF. I don't, we have the PFF subscription now. I don't know if this means the end of our 11 warriors snap count references. If it the is partner with them. So, yeah, kind of. What do you mean they're partnered with them? Uh, if you go look at uh, 11 Warriors snap count, it says they are now partnering with PFF. So so the 11 Warriors snap counts is what PFF is using? I don't know if it's – I don't know, I don't know who's using who. I just know they're partnering with each other. I don't know who's doing more of the heavy lifting, though. That didn't help. Now I'm more confused than if I just did not know that fact. <laughs> I was just going to say thanks to 11 Warriors for the snap counts over the years, but we're paying PFF, so we'll we'll use theirs now. The point is Denzel Burke played 63 snaps. Ryan Watts played 49. Demario McCall, 15. Legend Cavazos, 14. And at the very least, Nathan, like in the end, Legend Cavazos was here a year ahead of Denzel Burke, and Denzel Burke went right by him on the depth chart. So, like, that's that's at least one tangible thing. of They didn't just play guys in order of experience. They played the true freshman. 63 snaps. And, again, nobody had any experience. None of those, none of those four guys who played corner really had played corner in a snap that mattered in college football. So they didn't really have many choices, but it's why I've said it now nine times. Denzel Burke, Nathan, did not play only out of desperation. That is the thing that I took away from the way the coaches talked about him at Tuesday, and that's what applies to Oregon and the rest of the year. If Seven Banks plays Saturday, which, again, coming out of the Minnesota game, we thought was likely because of the way he was talked about. Ryan Day said he could play in an emergency situation. He was down on the field. He was dressed. He was hopping around. If Seven Banks plays Saturday and Cam Brown does not, does Denzel Burke start? Yes. I have very, I would not hesitate on that. I mean, maybe it's wrong, but that certainly is the read I got off of Thursday. I think I agree. Okay. Yeah. 
let's go to a second interesting guy. Let's go to Chris Olave, who came out and talked to us, is a pleasant fellow. And I was intrigued, Stephen, by how much he loves Oregon. I just think it's interesting when this kind of thing happens. And we knew he's, I mean, he's a West Coast guy. We all know the story. We don't have to repeat. He's a recruit late in the process. Ryan Day finds him. He gets the Ohio State offer. His recruiting blows up. But man, Steven, like he was not shy about saying how much that was his team growing up. He wasn't just like a, he wasn't some kind of Pac-12 fan floating around. This is a guy in San Diego loving Chip Kelly, Oregon football. Not really surprising, given the fact that he was 14 years old when Chip Kelly was there and they were running that offense and they were clearly the best team in the Pac-12, which is also why he got asked, who did you root for Oregon during that national title game in 2015? I mean, yeah, he probably did. He's on the West Coast and he's 15 years old, has no idea that in four years here he's going to be at Ohio State playing football. And so, yeah, that's not really surprising, given given his age. But also, for the record, Oregon did not offer him, which probably sits in his hard a little bit and will probably play into a little bit how he plays on Saturday. So this is the, it's the kind of stuff that all the little things matter, right? So Chris Olave is a class of 2018 recruit. So Ryan day is getting in on him there uh, late in 2017, right? The Ryan day is in Southern California and figuring this out. 2017 is the one year that Willie Taggart is the Oregon coach. It is this weird transitional year from Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart, who only lasts a year and then takes the Florida state job. And Mario Cristobal comes in. Chris Olave is a class of 2018 class of 2019. The third year guys, the reason Oregon is maybe good right now is because they went to Southern California in the class of 2019 and made it happen. Kayvon Thibodeau is from Southern California. Mikhail Wright is from Southern California. If Chris Olave was one year older or excuse me one year younger or if mario cristobal had been there doing it one year earlier again they're down making waves in southern california now we know everybody missed on chris olave right but but if if they're while they're down there they're going in southern california doing cave on thibodeau they're making the rounds and like the guy at the head coach of chris olave's high school here's like hey by the way i got this really good receiver who walks around in a duck costume all the time. He freaking loves you guys. Right. Nathan, like that is not, it's the timing of things that happen. And we've talked about this a lot with Ohio state and Alabama and and Clemson and teams like that going into California, going into the West coast because of this dip in the PAC 12 standard. But Oregon was the team that guys still loved, had a memory of loving. I, I, I hate the dream school question, but in the press conference, I asked the dream school question of Chris Olave was Oregon, your dream school. And he was like, yeah, that was basically my dream school. There's certainly, you could see Nathan, right? You move a couple blocks around a different way. And Chris Olave could be playing against Ohio state in this game instead of for Ohio state. Yeah. Well, first of all, like every guy of a certain age uh, that has a pliable, of football interest loved Oregon from that era. Like I, at one point I had, I had two guys, two friends living with me in a house in Indiana. One was a guy from Oregon. So he loves the ducks more than life itself. Another one was a guy from Fort Wayne, Indiana, who just loved all the stupid uniforms that they wore and, and playing them on Madden or whatever. And he was in love with Oregon. So I had two people living in my house that were just uh, crazy duck heads uh, at the same time. But I mean, it, it, it is really interesting. I was actually just looking up now to see if Oregon had recruited, um, 
Jack Tuttle, which is almost like the bigger question. Like, because that's how Ohio State wasn't recruiting Chris Olave. Like, they no, tripped I know. over Jack Tuttle and fell into Chris Olave. Yeah. So that, that's the more interesting conversation. You're right. Though, no, like, but we've had that missed, conversation a thousand times. Everybody, everybody missed, knows right, that Everybody story missed right on him. And, and, um, I think you're right that the bigger it's, it's what Ohio state sometimes benefits from with this, but but just being ready to pounce in areas where other people aren't doing their job. And I remember we had this question a couple of years ago on the pod, like where's the next place that Ohio state's going to infiltrate. And you and I, our answer both was, well, we don't know yet. Like that hasn't been decided. It's going to be decided by whoever trails off here. So I'm, I'm curious, like where in um, like Arkansas or um, uh, South Carolina or whatever the next Chris Olave comes from. Steven, get a pen. I hate the dream school question. We always like joke about like dream school stories. Like if you're, that's my dream school. I get it. We should ask Steven, we should try to ask every recruit, every guy on the Ohio state roster, who was your dream school when you were 15? And then how, for how many of them was it Ohio State? And for everybody that the answer is not Ohio State, why didn't you wind up at your dream school? Because like Quinn Ewers' dream school was Texas. And then Texas was too jacked up. And he was like, I'm going to go where I'm going to develop as a quarterback, right? But he never, I mean, everybody knows Texas was Quinn Ewers' dream school. I wonder what the percentage of scholarship players on Ohio State what percentage when they were 15 years old, let's say they're a freshman in high school, they're just, maybe they're on JV, they're playing a little bit, they're thinking about just the beginning of getting recruited. And if you would have said right then, before the process really started, where do you want to go? Are we over 50% on the Ohio State roster? Because probably everybody in Ohio would say Ohio State, but it's not like the roster is 50% Ohio guys anymore. Are there a lot of other guys in here who have the secret family connections that we always talk about? I'm, I'd be very curious about this, Stephen. And then what goes into beating a player's dream school to get him? Now, sometimes you beat the dream school because the dream schools never offers Oregon. But sometimes you beat them because a kid grows up and says, it's not about dreams. It's about reality. Mm-hmm. And the reality is this place is better for me. What do you think? Story idea? Yeah, because that is interesting because there's asking Chris Olave that question, the kid who just never got offered by his dream school. But then there's asking Quinn Ewers that question where it is kind of you got to make an basically make the first adults a decision of your life. And then there's the guys in between where it's like the dream school offered you. You could have clearly played there, but like there's like four people who are ahead of you while at Ohio State. All you got to do is wait a year before you get on the field. Like you got to, there's a lot of different ways that you can go with this answer. So I, yeah, that is a good story idea. Actually, it's something you could work on throughout the year, but then also go around the locker room after the big 10 championship game and get all the people we never talked to. Yeah. And Chris Olave was pretty far into his senior year. And like every division one offer was still a dream or every like major, like huge division <laughs> yeah. one offer. Was no, still but that's dream, not, but so. like your, cause your dreams could bust like, like when you're 15, when you were, yeah. Not when you, who do were you play s- on Madden every time. Who do you? Yeah. yeah. Like who, not before, when you were before, seven. Yeah. Before co- when you were at a level where it, you're not really sure if you're going to play college football or not yet, but like, it's still a real possibility. And you're like, if I could go to any school, where would it like be? Like the at? recruiting process has, you haven't really started to be recruited, but mm-hmm. you think you probably will be recruited. And Bingo. it's like, man, right now, if you could just tell me, go wherever you want to go, I would go to blank before I know anything. And it's based on 
uniforms and a game I watched on TV when I was nine and who my aunt likes and who my friends like and color schemes and all that stuff. Um, that's an interesting dream school story. I think like, you know, someone like I was thinking of like tough Borland, like somebody who grows up like two hours from Madison from a, with a dad who played at Wisconsin. And so that has to be your dream school. But then once somebody, once Ohio state calls you and then you go look at Ohio state, like that's gotta be a hard thing to say no to. Yeah. Like what happens, but like, were you still kind of in on Wisconsin? If Wisconsin had gotten on you super duper early, would you have just locked it down and gone there? How much was there a dream school? It's not interesting to go to your dream school. It's interesting right. to not go to your dream school. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a decent percentage of guys who could who could very truthfully say, I didn't have a dream school. There's a lot of guys who just don't really like get invested in college football necessarily, especially if they're not growing up that close to it, that it's more like they're NFL guys. And then it becomes sort of like almost a business decision for them. Yeah. Which is why when Chris Olave was like, I loved Oregon. It was like, yeah. what? I thought that thought like a lot of times stuff like that is not interesting. I thought this was interesting. And it's, it's one of those things, Johnny Johnson, the third, who's Oregon's best receiver, I think is a more complete professional receiver than anybody that played for Minnesota against Ohio state. The, the, the Texas A&M transfer who had the touchdown catch, he's got some upside, but that was like basically the first college game he ever played at receiver. Johnny Johnson, the third has been doing it for a while. He had three catches last week. I think he is a competent, solid. He's a little like type, maybe like, 85 or 90 percent of like Ty Freifogel, right? Like a really good receiver. So like a Ben Victor, Austin Mack, like the kind of guy Ohio State. Yeah, like good receiver, like good receiver. But man, you know, you drop. Go ahead, drop the Chris Olave that we see right now on this Oregon team. It changes the game. Then, of course, well, if he had gone to Oregon, would become this Chris Olave because of did he have Brian Hartline? Would he be in this offense? So I get that too. But also, there's a lot of intrinsic talent in there. That guy would have found a way. We're, is Ryan Day on your list of 10 people we're going to talk about? Because the same thing applies to him, right? Like, I mean, could could this be Ryan Day coaching Chris Olave against Ohio State? All right. Well, fine. We'll do it. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, Kerry, I It's not only players. It's not only players. Kerry Combs is on my list. We'll get okay. to him. Let's do Ryan Day right now. This is, not a, this is not a new story. And I'll go back and look this up. When I um, sat in Ryan Day's office soon after he got the job a couple of years ago, I definitely remember him talking about. So goes everybody knows Chip Kelly's his guy. Everybody knows Chip Ryan Day is is the protege of Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is his mentor. They're practically like family. Ryan Day reaffirmed on Tuesday that they talk like every day. Chip Kelly's at Oregon. Chip, do we have to get the background? Chip Kelly is from the same high school in Manchester, New Hampshire, as Ryan Day. When Ryan Day went to New Hampshire to play, Chip Kelly was the offensive coordinator. They're from the same high school in Manchester, New Hampshire. Like, it's crazy. Their wives are very good friends. That's how tight they are. Chip Kelly goes to Oregon, and, like, he wants to bring, like, his best friend with him. And Ryan Day has a job offer. I'll go look up my story. But it's basically like Ryan Day was, like, ready to take it and then had a family gathering in New Hampshire and was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so I don't know that Ryan Day would have been Mark Helfrich, but I think he could have been maybe Mark Helfrich, which means you take over for Chip Kelly when he goes to the NFL and you become Oregon's head coach, and who knows? And as Ryan Day retold the story, Nathan, 
he and Chip said, well, we'll work together someday. And then it was like Ryan Day didn't want to move to the West Coast for Oregon, which was one of the 10 best programs in college football. So he moved to the West Coast to work for the 49ers where they all got fired in a year. So it was like, <laughs> again, it's one of those things. It's funny how stuff works out sometimes. And again, I've told the story a million times. Standing stages of his family's life, too, I guess. True. And that you, you, the age of your children matters so much in coaching decisions that I hope everybody understands that. Whether you're going to move, nobody moves their kids in middle school. You move them between middle school and high school. Once they're in high school, nobody moves. Elementary, you're more open to it, right? If they're toddlers, you'll take them anywhere. Like all this stuff matters. Standing on the field on the Fiesta Bowl after 31-0, knowing that Tim Beck had to go, and standing there and saying, well, Chip Kelly just got fired. I wondered if, felt if Urban will hire Chip Kelly because they had just hired Greg Schiano. And it was like, no, they're going to hire Chip Kelly's protege, who, as we stood on the field at the Fiesta Bowl after that loss, we had never heard of before. And it was Ryan Day. But, but Nathan, it's, it is the, it's the road not taken, right? I mean, it's fascinating. As you said, it is not that far away from it being a real possibility. Yeah, I mean, and, and he's, I think, been up, up front about that. And and um, I know that this is something that intrigues uh, people that cover Oregon and people that talk about Oregon and people that uh, follow Oregon, that, like, when you see Ryan Day now having the success that he's had, um, you, I think you ask yourself, because they've just, since Chip Kelly, they've never really locked it in, right? Like, it's never completely gotten back on track there. And if Ryan Day comes someplace like Ohio State and is able to, like, you know, lay this foundation, you know, they, they had their chance. I mean, they had, they had the same scenario, really. They were passing the torch from a very successful head coach, kind of a, you know, um, revolutionary head coach in some way in Chip Kelly. And he was leaving to another level. So they were kind of handing off the success to someone else and they fumbled it. And Ohio state didn't Ohio state got it right. Would Ryan Day still be Oregon's head coach right now? Had this all played out. That's See, the, that's the other thing. Like if, if he had actually taken that original job, if he isn't Mark Helfrich, then then the rest of his career probably plays out the same way, right? Because he just follows Chip Kelly to the NFL. Two stops later, they all get fired. Like, yeah, no, it, it, there's a different. I mean, it's this is like the best possible path for Ryan Day, right? That yeah. it is not yes, that it's, it's it, a better situation. It is not that Ryan Day is not talented because he's clearly talented in, in a multitude of ways, but for him to sort of wind up at this spot with this opportunity before he was 40 is kind of nuts because he went from the fired quarterbacks coach of a bad NFL team to the head coach of Ohio state in three years. Like it's, it's unbelievable. And this Oregon detour is somewhere probably in between. And it would have been like with anything else, right? When Thad Mata left Xavier to come to Ohio state, It's like, well, you can either bring your staff or you can have like your top assistant take over for you. So Sean Miller stayed at Xavier and took over rather than come with Thad Mata to Ohio State. Then Sean Miller becomes Sean Miller. And it leads to Sean Miller. Did he get get fired? Oh, Uh, not from Xavier. No, but I mean, in Arizona, is he fired now because of the violations, because of the cheating and all this stuff? Siri, is Sean Miller fired? So, I mean, it's like, you know, it's the road not to, right? (laughs) Hold on. When, when you search what? Sean Miller on Google, the first thing that comes up is Sean Miller sweat. Oh, because that, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's been fired, but yeah, the yes. sweaty shirt is He also. was fired. But before I could search for whether he was fired, it confirmed that he was sweaty. So it's like the version of that, I don't know, Sean Miller doesn't take the Xavier job, comes to Ohio State with Thad Mata, 
Thad Mata leads Ohio State to the national championship game with Greg Oden and Mike Conley decides, you know what, I will take the Indiana job or whatever it was. He was like, right, maybe it was, I think it was after his second year, before the Odin Conley year, the Indiana job was open and people were like, is he going to take the Indiana job? Because guess what? Dream school, the Indiana job was Thad Mata. And it's like, so Thad Mata comes, is a two-year guy at Ohio State because he takes the Indiana job. He winds up in Indiana 15 years later in a very different path. And Sean Miller winds up as the head coach at Ohio State because he followed, instead he winds up, Succeeding at Xavier, going to Arizona, having great regular season records, never getting over the top in the tournament, and then getting fired in a cheating scandal. So it's like the road's not taken, right? Here's the sentence that I was trying to remember. It's from a story that I wrote about Ryan Day and Ryan Day's grandfather after Ryan Day's grandfather passed away. His grandfather was the father figure in Ryan Day's life after Ryan Day's father passed away. As his grandfather's favorite pastime became Day's profession, the grandson would call his grandfather every time he faced a career crossroads. When he reconsidered and passed on the chance to work for his mentor, Chip Kelly, as Oregon's offensive coordinator several years ago, he changed his mind while at his grandfather's birthday party in New Hampshire. So he was like gone. He was out the door and he went to a family gathering and was like, I can't leave. I can't leave. I can't leave. And that's how, Nathan, that's how close it is, right? So this is all this stuff being rekindled at a time when, by the way, Chip Kelly at UCLA just beat LSU and it's kind of back on the scene. So we have this whole thing again. It's Oregon, Chip Kelly, Ryan Day, everything converging. And like, everybody's okay. Chip Kelly's okay right now. Oregon's okay because Mario Cristobal is a pretty darn good head coach. And Ryan Day sure turned out okay. But the guys at his grandpa's birthday party being like, I'm leaving. Uh, no, I'm not. It's crazy. I, those things are, are kind of fascinating because you do. We've talked before about kind of Ryan Day's ruthlessness. And it's not like he hasn't bounced around a little bit, too. Right. Like, I mean, all coaches have to do it. Like, that's how you climb the ladder. It's not usually straight up one ladder. It's like you're climbing a series of, of ladders. It, it snakes around. And he, he's definitely bounced around. And some of that was attached to Chip Kelly, too, as we just said. So that, that kind of that balance that he has struck in his life between when to take those leaps um, and when to have to, you know, move those distances and when to sort of buckle down and, and stay close to home. Um, it, it's just kind of an interesting part of Ryan Day's personality. And it probably informs what his tenure at Ohio State is going to eventually be. I only ask, do we still think he's the Oregon head coach if that's how this plays out? Is I mean, Ohio State's clearly this is the in-game job. I mean, there's only like four or five, six, seven of those jobs in college football. I don't know if Oregon qualifies as like an in-game job where there's no better college football job you could have out there. That would seem like a situation where if he does really well, let's just say he gets off to a, a recruiting a Oregon level of what recruiting success would look like out there, maybe in three or four years, maybe then he jumps at an NFL job. I mean, we keep joking about it right now. If he jumps at an NFL job in the next 15 years or so, maybe he jumps at it after four or five years of being Oregon's head coach the same way Chip Kelly did. Well, what year would that have been that he was thinking about going to Oregon in the first place? What year did Kelly leave Oregon, I guess, is the better question. This is, that would have been He would have been a very young head coach to be taking over a program. Yeah, but younger guys stature. have taken over. I mean, like, yeah. yes, you're correct that it would have been, he would be like 35. Yeah. But 2012 – if he was like Chip's anointed guy, yeah. right? That that I, I don't know, man. 
I don't know. What if? So Ryan Day is like an East Coast guy, right? And as it turns out, like if you're an East Coast guy and you want to compete at the highest level in college football, guess where you have to coach? Ohio State. It's the East Coastest place where you can win a national championship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if he took over at Oregon and was awesome? I mean, Mark Helfrich's got, I mean, they didn't, Ohio State didn't play Chip Kelly in the national championship game. They played Mark Helfrich in 2014. So Ryan Day, I like fan fiction. I'm will, I would be willing to make an entire fan fiction podcast where we do nothing but talk about things that did not happen but could have. So Ryan Day, this is like, oh, less- you, mean, you mean like the Buckeye fly effect? I think somebody already did that. Oh, yeah. They really should spin that off. Like I talked to the people <laughs> in charge of that. So like Les Miles, right? Les Miles uh, is an Ohio guy from Elyria, go, plays at Michigan, leads LSU to the national championship. And Kirk Herbstreet says, like in the buildup to the Ohio State national, LSU national championship game in 2007, says that LSU, Les Miles is going to be the next coach at Michigan. And it didn't happen. But I think the reason it didn't happen is because it got out. I think he was going to be the next coach at Michigan. And then the fact that it got reported kept it from happening. How about Ryan Day leads Oregon to the national championship game in a desperate attempt to compete with Ohio State? The Michigan Wolverines land on somebody who would like to live closer to the East Coast and has succeeded at the highest levels of college football. And instead of hiring Jim Harbaugh, the Michigan Wolverines hire Ryan Day. I was going to give you another one, too, which is Penn State hired a new coach in 2014. So they could have been fighting over Ryan Day. And then as Urban Meyer, right, is succeeding at the highest level, winning national championships. But we did reach that point with later Urban a little bit where after Tom Herman left, it was like, oh, the offense is the world passing Urban by offensively. And it's like Michigan or Penn State, wherever Ryan Day wound up was like, man, what about their offense? Right. I mean, that's not. There's a path in the in the the millions of things that can happen in life. The Ryan Day winds up as the head coach at Penn State or Michigan path exists in one of the alternate universes because he decides I don't want to stay at Oregon long term. I'd like to get back closer to New Hampshire at a big time program. Where can I be closer to New Hampshire and coach at a big time program? I got to be in the Big Ten. Well, where do I want to be in the Big Ten that I would leave Oregon for? There's three programs. And it's the three we just named. He picked, he wound up at one of the three, could have wound up at one of the other two. I, I know we're blowing your mind, but that's what we're talking. I mean, like there's the guy and then there's all, you know, life, man. Because sometimes you make the wrong decision and it turns out right. Sometimes you make the right decision and it turns out wrong. I think you could argue from like a smart professional move turning down the chance to go to Oregon with Chip Kelly and then kind of hanging around and then winding up going to the Niners with Chip Kelly was the wrong move twice because like, and then he didn't wind up with him with the Eagles. Like he waited, he waited till San Francisco when Chip Kelly was like kind of on the way down or was he at the Eagles? No, he wasn't the Eagles. Wasn't he? Yeah. He was at the Eagles and he winds up like Chip Kelly's like in free fall by the time Ryan day gets to him. Ryan Day does not go with his ascending friend. He winds up with his descending friend and gets fired. And the result of getting fired after one year in San Francisco, 
is he winds up at Ohio State with a coach who's going to retire in two years. Like, it is unbelievable. Again, talent often, but not always, rises to the top. So Ryan Day deserves this job, but man, it was a bit of a circuitous path to get here, which uh, I think we just reminded ourselves of. I have not taken a break, right? Not taking a break? No break yet? No break? This is the break. We'll be back on Buckeye Talk. Doug Nathan Stevens, 614-350-3315 for the texts. Let's get back on the defensive side of the ball a little bit, and let's talk about Tommy Eichenberg, Nathan. And let's actually make this, Stephen, we'll make this four and five. We'll combine them because we will talk about Tommy Eichenberg and Cody Simon in tandem. We did get to talk to Cody Simon on Tuesday. They shared the Mike linebacker, middle linebacker job against Minnesota. Tommy Eichenberg started. The snaps were pretty equal. What do we think we learned from that, Nathan? And what do we think it's going to be? 49 snaps for Tommy Eichenberg against Minnesota, 37 for Cody Simon. I guess based on what we saw last week, I would expect there to be a timeshare at that going forward. Um, unless one of them separates in some way. But you definitely, from asking um, Kerry Combs about him today, from asking even Cody Simon about him today, it's clear that they see a value in having Tommy Eichenberg on the field. They talked about him, as you astutely pointed out in our our post-interview video, um, they talk about him the same way they talk about Tough Borland. So now it's a matter of, as a fan who's listening to this, those of you who are listening to this, does that make you cringe? with Tommy Eichenberg has talked about like tough Borland, or do you see it as, Oh, this is what we wished tough Borland had been that he had all these intangibles, but maybe has more athletic upside that you see in Tommy Eichenberg. But I see even more athletic upside in Cody Simon. There's always going to be somebody. There's always going to be somebody in that linebacker room that has more upside than the Borland Eichenberg example. Right? So Nathan, as we stay on Tommy Eichenberg for a second here, Kerry Combs said something like, it was a tough game and he's a tough guy or whatever. Like it's Minnesota's going to run it. Catching running backs is part of the job of the middle line. Physical game. I think physical player for a physical game. Would you take that to mean maybe we see less Eichenberg going forward that he's more of a Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa middle linebacker. Or do you think he stays in the mix of this rotation? I don't know which I think will happen, but I am intrigued by what you're talking about, which is, does he become in a way, what Justin Hilliard was, not that it's a fourth linebacker you're putting on the field, but that you're making decisions as to your alignment and who even starts and who even plays most of those snaps, even if they can do conventional inside spots based on the matchup that you're in. Because he makes more sense against a team that's going to run the ball a lot than a team that is going to like drop back a whole bunch of times. I think there you start to see the value of someone like Cody Simon. And it's something that that's, again, a kind of an example of what I think people had wished that they had done, been more willing to do with the, like, for instance, the the Borland um, Baron Browning trade-off. Although we did see some examples of that that year, too, if people remember. Like, by the end of the year, Browning was playing more snaps per game than Borland was. All right, so let's move a little bit more to Cody Simon. Steven, you are the proprietor of uh, Cody Simon, uh, the cul-de-sac. You have kept the lawn nicely trimmed there. You're you have a beautiful home, four bedroom, two and a half bath on Cody Simon cul-de-sac. What did you think of those 37 snaps in game one? 
Um, I think they don't know who their best linebackers not named Taraja Mitchell are yet. And because they're playing Minnesota, it looks bad, but they just play people who they felt like could be the answer at Mike linebacker or even be that third linebacker when they do go three guys with Dallas camp being, I think he's more than Justin Hilliard in this situation where when you need another linebacker, you're just going to play him. But I do think going forward, Ryan, Day kind of alluded to it too. It's they played a lot of guys in week one because they had a lot of depth and they wanted to find stuff out, but I don't think it's going to look the same against Oregon. I don't think the snaps will be as equally put as equally distributed like that. And I think as the season goes on, you'll see one of those two just take over. I would vote obviously for Cody Simon, because I think he can do a lot of the stuff that you're saying that Tommy Eichenberg does, because he's also here as a Mike linebacker. That's what he came here out of high school as outside of, and which is not what Baron Browning was. Baron Browning was a will linebacker. So I think he can do a lot of that stuff that, you know, get guys in the right place, do all the vocal stuff that you require from your Mike linebacker, but also he's just a better athlete, as we saw in that blitz they had at the end of the first first half. We will get to oh Nick. Go ahead, Nathan. That's a difficult thing for us to assess because we're not down there on the field. We're not in the huddle. Mm-hmm. You know, when when there's there might be a legitimate difference between how well Tommy Eichenberg sets this defense and communicates things to this defense and what Cody Simon does. That's we we're not down there. And if we were, it would be just terrifying for everybody. <laughs> Probably also the people on the other team who would maybe be, uh, you know, uh, charged with manslaughter for the first time they ran anywhere near us. And we just collapsed in a puddle, but uh, we're, we're not down there. So that's the thing that I kind of always hold out that how many, how often is it coach speak and how often is it legitimate when they're talking about, the guy who sets the defense well and, and communicates. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they played, they, they play the guys they think that give them the best chance to win. So mm-hmm. it sure matters to them. It sure matters to them. And I think Co- Tommy Eichenberg deserves credit for getting himself into this mix at, at linebacker. That wasn't a sure thing. And Cody Simon deserves a lot of, of credit for making his name. He was a higher rated recruit, but he still had to do something to earn this spot. You know, there was a time in the spring where we maybe thought that like Dallas, at least Nathan and I think you and I thought Dallas Gant was going to be the starting middle linebacker. And he is clearly the third guy. He is not this mix. He is not. He's in a different position now. And Steven was on Cody Simon early, but Eichenberg and Simon made them do something because the easy thing would have been play Gant. That was set up to play Gant. So you have two guys who made a move. And if they made that move, again, they made it for a reason. I think Eichenberg and Simon both fall in the same categories like Denzel Burke that, okay, well, who else are you going to play? The USC guy's still not eligible. Henry Toto didn't come here. You know, they don't have a five-star linebackers all over the place. Mitchell Melton's hurt, whatever. But they're also playing for a reason. That, that, that it is not only desperation that put Tommy Eichenberg and Cody Simon in the lineup. There are things that they like. My guess would be, my guess is that it continues. I don't know that we'll ever get to a spot where one of those guys seizes that job because I do think they seem to like both of them for different reasons. Among the people we're still going to get to, Kerry Combs, CJ Stroud. That's ahead, but Nathan, for the sixth most interesting guy, and again, it's just num- it's not the sixth most. It's just number six on the list. I do want to talk about Dewan Jones. Kayvon Thibodeau for Oregon. Might play, might not. They'll move him around. I saw at least one snap where he was over the right tackle. He was the snaps that I saw. He was over the left tackle more often. 
But my guess is, well, try to get the best matchup, and I'd rather have the best pass rusher in the country over Dewan Jones instead of Nicholas Petit Frere, especially when Thibodeau is basically a speed guy. And, you know, Petit Frere is leaner and I think moves pretty well in pass protection. Dewan Jones earned that starting spot at right tackle. Nathan, what's the level of confidence that Ohio State fans should have if Thibodeau plays? Just assume that Thibodeau is going to play and be 85% of himself. And then if Ohio State fans, if he's less than that, that's a win for Ohio State. What's your confidence level, Nathan, that if he's over Dewan Jones, Ohio State fans should look at that matchup and say, I have belief in Dewan Jones to block him. Do I think that Dewan Jones would absolutely block him every single time? No, I don't think I think that of any tackle in the country because Kayvon Thibodeau, if healthy, is a pretty great player. Now, I will say, I think you brought up a good observation about Thibodeau, which is that there is he gets by a lot on his just natural speed, strength, just those those athletic qualities that he has are so advanced that he can get by on that a lot. If he is compromised physically, though, and would have to maybe rely more on technique, I think that plays in Dewan Jones's favor. Because now the good thing about Dewan Jones is even though his technique is still coming along and he hasn't had to face someone of, well, there aren't very many of Thibodeau's quality, but he's faced other, he's faced Ohio State's pass rushers in practice. So he's gone up against Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith and those guys. So he knows a little bit what he's doing there, but he's, he's so long that I think that's the thing that I think would give me confidence just about against just about anybody. If I was an Ohio State fan is that Dewan Jones at the very least can spread himself out and, and make a defender have to work so much just to get around him in the first place that you're buying CJ Stroud a decent amount of time. Boyo Mafe obviously is not as good as Kayvon Thibodeau is at all. They're not even in the same class, but he's pretty freaking good. And Dewan Jones held up his own against there against him when they played Minnesota. So I think I, I don't I don't know. I mean, you're still worried, but I, I think that puts you at your mind at ease a little bit more than maybe it would have had Dewan Jones got out there and CJ Stroud had been getting sacked every other play, or there was a QB hurry every other play, or CJ had no time to get the ball off. But for the most part, CJ was pretty comfortable back there. And even on some plays where it was some longer developing routes where a guy maybe could have gotten him just because the, the route was just because the play took a little bit longer. It never felt like CJ was uncomfortable is on that right side, which is, is all you can ask of from a right tackles in his first game as an official starter. I actually think Boya Mafe is probably fairly equal to Kayvon Thibodeau with a sprained ankle. I think that's actually probably yeah. a somewhat decent Fair. comparison. And, and one of the things that kind of got under talked about after this game was I think everyone assumed that Nicholas Petit Frere and Thayer Mumford would be fine, but Luke Whipler starting for the first time. He's, is he on your list, Doug? Yes, please stay on topic. Okay. I'm just saying that the, the whole <laughs> offensive line uh, grading as champions was under discussed. It's my favorite thing in the world where like Nathan or I try to like get ahead of things, unknowing that Doug wants to talk about it later. <laughs> but I stopped myself and asked the moderator Thank you. And, then, and, then, and then stopped talking. You have a tendency to, to make a 15 minute answer about something where that the thing that I have next on the list. I like talking I, about football, man. I get excited. Sorry. I uh, on the Brown. I was on the Browns podcast today for like the first time in two months because they got tired of me talking and they finally let me back on. And, and uh, <laughs> something came up where Mary Kay Cabot made a point and I looked up a stat to refute her point and make myself look smart. And in the process of looking up the stat, I realized I confirmed her point instead and made myself look like an idiot. And I still read the stat on the podcast because as I said, 
It's part of the podcaster's oath. And I take that very seriously. And also part of the podcaster's oath is stay on topic. Let's get to Whipler now. I, I was going to move him down, but I'll move him up. Nathan, is he the starting center? I don't like, like Ryan Day will not talk about injuries, but I, I don't know if it was coach speak. I don't know when Harry Miller's coming back, but are we sure that when Harry Miller comes back, he's the starter and Luke Whipler isn't, or is there at least a question in our mind at this point? There's a, there's a question in my mind. It's not like Luke Whipler is a scrub that they had to elevate. They got, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Luke Whipler, if Harry Miller didn't exist at Luke Whipler would have been starting for this team this year. We probably wouldn't have thought that much about it, or there would have been a battle between him and Matt Jones to be the, the starting center. Um, but it says something to me that even with Matt Jones at their disposal, a guy who was playing some center in the spring and a guy who is more veteran and has started in the past, they jumped right over him and have gone to Luke Whipler as the guy who started that opener. We don't know exactly how much time he had to prepare. Um, I think we're scheduled to talk to Luke Whipler on Wednesday, so I, we'll get some insight on that. Um, but Ryan Day, like you said, has been a little bit was more reticent even than usual. I thought today in talking about injuries and absences. So, um, but I, yeah, I, I absolutely think that there's a world here where Luke Whipler gets in and plays so well that Harry Miller is the one on the outside looking in. Steve, I think Harry, this, is, this is related but, to Harry Miller. Harry Miller's mm-hmm. just had a little bit of a weird path here, man. Not healthy in the spring, which opened the door for this conversation to begin with. He gets healthy in the fall, and then it's like very clear he's a starting center. I mean, every practice we went through, he practiced with the ones. We talked to him. We talked to Costad. It was pretty clear. He's a starting center. And then he's hurt again. So I don't know if the question is – I think Harry Miller's a starting center still. Like if, if he's healthy and ready to go this week, he starts, and it's, it's the end of this conversation. The question is how many games that he does he have to miss before Luke Whipper just takes the job from him? Because – as Ryan Day has talked about, we just want to get through these first two games and then kind of reset and see where we're at. So maybe you just get through these two games, you get everybody healthy for that Akron Tulsa run, and then you you get into the swing of things. But if Harry Miller misses three, four games and Luke Whippler's in kind of rolling and he's not great, but he's not bad either. He's pretty solid and he's surrounded by four pretty elite tackles at that point. I think you just stick with Luke Whippler. I do think we I do think it's worth remembering that if Luke Whipler had blown everybody away in practice, there was an interior offensive line job there for the taking. Mm-hmm. And that we had theorized, well, then Whipler could be the center and you keep Harry Miller at left guard and you keep Nicholas Petit for at right tackle. And instead, they did this whole reshuffle of the offensive line because the guy who proved he was the fifth best offensive lineman was Dewan Jones, not Luke Whipler. So where Harry Miller had proved that he was one of the five. Right. So I do, it, it's not like, yeah, like there was That's room for point. Luke. Yeah. There was room for Luke mm-hmm. and it didn't happen. So I do think that's reason to think, well, no, they do. Harry is Harry was the guy, but go ahead, Nathan. I mean, it just is just Harry's just had a little bit of a, of a rough stretch. No, uh, and, and there's there's a little bit more nuance to it than that as far as like why they restructured the line and, and how they did it. But I think that's a fair point, too, that it, it it did appear that like by on his own merits, they've been talking about they've been talking positively about Luke Whipler for a long time and really throughout this whole process of the competition. They were also talking pretty positively about Matt Jones, even in recent weeks after they'd gone to this this reconfigured line. But you're right that at some point, um, 
that there's there's a reliability factor that sets in. Like, I don't know how else to say it. And we don't know exactly what's going on with Harry Miller, but we've certainly seen other instances at other positions where where guys um, take the opportunity and run with it. And they weren't the guy that was expected to win that job. But you look back at the end of the year and that's who held it down all season. But especially on the offensive line where it's about continuity. And if you're four games into this and the line's smooth, why mess that up just to, for the sake of messing it up? Just bad. You'd like Harry Miller to at least like get, get to a point where he can give a full fight for it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if he, he won the job and wasn't able to start in the opener. So it would be good for him and good for the Buckeyes for Harry Miller to get back as soon as possible. Let's go to number eight. Nathan, uh, you and I discussed this to a decent amount on the, the Madness pod. So this is more a position group than a person that's interesting. But Stephen, I mostly want your thoughts on this because Ryan Day did take it a step further when he was asked about it on Tuesday. They played three running backs, but and then Marcus Crowley got in there a little bit, and, and Ryan Day was asked, do you kind of probably have to shorten the running back rotation? And he said yes. I thought, Stephen, it was maybe of anything he was asked, it was maybe the most definitive thing he said, that we're not going to play as many running backs against Oregon as we did against Minnesota, and I think that matters. Yeah, Maya Williams and Travion Henderson are going to play on Saturday, and we'll see what happens with Master Teague. Some of this is is enhanced by the fact that they only had 48 snaps. So it, it really they, these guys really didn't get a chance to get into a rhythm because not only did you rotate that much, you didn't have enough offense to play to begin with. But I do think the second half was kind of a hint. We didn't see Master Teague again in the second half after what he did in that first series that he got that sec. He was in for the second series. I believe we didn't see him again in the second half. We saw Maya Williams and we saw Travion Henderson. And then we saw Marcus Crowley on like some third down passing situations where he's not really a threat. He's just a guy that they, they motion out wide just to, just to be kind of a decoy. So they could have got the ball to Jeremy Ruckett on that specific play. So yeah, I just am assuming that Maya Williams is going to start. We're going to see Travion Henderson in the second series. And at this point, it's just going to be those two guys rotating. Yeah, there was a little bit of an optical illusion, not optical, but like Ohio State just didn't run that many plays in the first half of that game. And it's that's why it seemed like an eternity before my Williams got back on the field. But really, it was two possessions or whatever. There were just long stretches between those possessions. I, I did think I did not note it this way as much in the moment, but it was brought up on Tuesday this way. And I thought, you know what? That's right. That. They clearly were just kind of rotating the three main guys. Everybody gets your series, your series. But it's, that's not a rule. <laughs> I mean, Ryan Day reemphasized that the position coaches are in charge of who plays. He said, Ryan Day said, I talk about it with Tony Alford, but it's really Tony's decision in the end. Just like Kerry Combs said, I talked to Larry Johnson about who plays defensive line. That, that's Larry Johnson's decision. I did the idea, Nathan, that – that game, the Ohio State-Minnesota game, early in the fourth quarter is 31-24. It is a one-score game. Minnesota has just kicked a field goal to make it a one-score game. Ohio State comes on the field with about 10 minutes left in the game, and they have the freshman running back in the game. And I think it – I just thought, well, it's Trayvon Henderson's turn. What are you going to do? Well, it's like, but it's also the fourth quarter of a game you could lose – and you have him in the game, and then that's the series where they throw him the screen on third and five, and he runs for a 70-yard touchdown. Ryan Day was asked, if do you only call the screen because he's in the game? Would you have run the same thing with Master Teague 
or Mayan Williams. And he was like, well, you kind of just got to run your plays because if you try to get too specific to the player and maybe you're the play caller, you're not exactly sure who's in the game. So I kind of, my impression was we just wanted to run a screen to the running back on that third down play. We thought it would be a good play. I don't think every running back in the world or every running back on that roster would have turned it into a 70 yard touchdown. But I think it is noteworthy that Tony Alford put the freshman in the game in a one score game in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I know. I thought that was a astute observation that someone made today too, to kind of point out that that was a decision that was being made at the time. And I, I was intrigued by, because they hadn't really, they hadn't set up a screen like that. They, they rarely do. I mean, we've talked on this podcast about how rarely they set up running back screens like that. And so for him to say that they did it, you know, that it what didn't have anything to do with Henderson being in the game, but they clearly saw an opportunity to attack Minnesota's defense with that play specifically. So maybe it's just right place, right time. I don't know, but we learned a lot about their confidence in Trevor and Henderson, both the fact that he was getting on the field there. And then I think he reinforced that confidence with the way he ran the ball on that play. Like I think that that then that, that, that permeates a confidence kind of through the team. When you see a guy who then gets the ball in his hands and does what he did with it on that play. I also don't, believe in that idea that oh you're just gonna run your plays because they would not have ran a screenplay if master t was in the game and they would not i I don't know with mayan williams but nothing about master t's career here has shown you that he's a threat in that type of way not even from a 70 yard percent i don't even know like they don't do stuff like that with him not even from a not i'm not even talking about the 70 yard part of it that probably doesn't even go eight or nine yards with master t just catch catch the ball catch the ball and and make a play You can, I mean, I they, there were definitely times late last season where they dumped passes off to him. To, um, well, that was more, it was more the, with Sermon, though. read on a check down. Yeah. Like I'm just that, saying, like, I'm just saying, like, it, it's not like he, he's had stone hands. Like, they've used him in that situation before. I'm just mean, like, the last time I saw them really dial up a play where it's clearly a screen for a running back was J.K. Dobbins in the Fiesta Bowl. And that's because you knew J.K. could do something with it. Even if in that one position, he didn't do something with it. All right, we'll take another quick break and be back with the last two people on our list of the 10 most interesting Buckeyes for this Oregon game. We'll do Kerry Combs and CJ Stroud to finish it out next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Nathan Steven, make sure you're subscribed to Buckeye Talk so you don't miss any episodes and make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Buckeye Talk and the YouTube channel. You know, we do these we do these podcasts for the morning. But the YouTube channel videos, which are little snippets that cover maybe like one topic, go up more quickly right after we have interviews or something like that. So if you want some of this content more with a little bit more immediate fashion, make sure you subscribe to that YouTube to do Cleveland.com, Ohio State, Buckeye Talk, football, whatever you'll find it. All right, let's do Kerry Combs. I asked Kerry Combs about blitzing. I thought they blitzed twice by my count. I don't know. What do I know? In that game, the Cody Simon one that got home, they blitzed, had a corner blitz on another play that kind of nothing happened. And I asked Kerry Combs about blitzing, how you sort of decide when to blitz. He said, I prefer four-man pressure, right? That a lot of times at Ohio State, I understand why, why they rely on that. But Kerry Combs did say that. But he also said, with a team like Minnesota, and I thought this was interesting, with a team like Minnesota, they'll run on third down at any point. And so you cannot allow yourself to get sucked in on that. I think that is an astute point, and I don't know that it applies to Oregon, Nathan. So it makes me think 
if maybe they'll dial up a few more things against Oregon on Saturday, which is which is kind of why I wanted to bring up Kerry Combs. But just in general, we're doing our little Buckeye Talk Awards on the tech subscription every week. Now I'm going to send those out on Monday and we'll send them back to the texters. It's for the texters only. If you want to be part of that, get to vote for the Buckeye Talk Awards. Free trial and try it. 614-350-3315. But among the things that in there is what do you feel great about? What do you feel worried about? The list of five things I said, what do you feel worried about? Defensive play calling was second on the list of worries, Nathan, behind only the secondary. I don't know. It's a big thing that we've been talking about since he got back. How do we feel about Kerry Combs designing a defense one game into this season? I mean, again, I don't know that I sat there and watched that defense and thought, why is Ohio State calling this defense the way it is I, I but I may have just been more distracted by how many different guys are they going to play on this defense tonight because it, it was a lot of people so again I'm still I'm finding it a hard it's it's still hard to analyze I mean Kerry Combs even asked today like I think one of the first questions he got was like are you do you have a healthy second like when are you going to get to finally coach a healthy secondary or something like that like, you know, it, the way that we analyze him changes a lot um, if Seven Banks and Cam Brown are able to play that game. I think it because now there's a lot of discussion within the context of guys who are getting out there for the first time, like Denzel Burke, like Ryan Watts. So. But at some point, like it, it, he can't he can't get that pass forever. At some point, the part of the job is not just calling the plays. Part of the job is developing the depth and having guys who can play when you're, when, when something goes wrong. So um, I, 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 it's still not a huge concern for me. I think that if you're, if you're weighing it between um, how the game is called and availability, then I think as a fan, your concern should still be more on the availability side. I think you still, you want as many guys healthy as possible and it makes how the game is called potentially less critical. I think the Oregon game is going to be a better way to tell than the Minnesota game. And I, I, I know, I feel like every week you're saying that we keep giving him more passes, but we're not Minnesota was just not normal. Um, what outside of the missing cornerbacks, it's a lot of the stuff Minnesota tried to do. It made it kind of hard to get creative and you can't really blitz when a team's going to run the ball all the time because one blitz gets picked up and it's a 20 yard touchdown run as we saw with Mo- Muhammad Ibrahim on, on Thursday. So I think with Oregon, maybe being a, a more balanced offense with their attack, they're going to throw it some, they're going to run it some, you're not going to see a lot of 13 personnel plus an extra tackle in the game. I think you're, it allows Kerry Combs to show a little bit more of some of the stuff he's designed up. Some of these blitzes on third down, maybe trying to catch somebody off guard on the first down, stuff like that, instead of being so basic and being in jumbo package, or we're, we're seeing snaps where before the play gets, the play gets off, it's lines of guys coming in and out of the game because they're trying to match up. And it's a combination too. It's like, it's a reluctance to blitz in those situations. So you're just hoping that your four man rush, gets gets better pressure and then that four-man rush running up against what could be as good an offensive line as it sees all year mm-hmm. just there's a lot of there's a history at ohio state of like we'll like we're gonna put our guys in the field try to beat them like our 11 are better than your 11 and just at some point you know at some point i think you'd like to see a couple more times a game where it feels like that thing just happened defensively and it's because it was a good call. It wasn't a great individual play because honestly, it happens on offense, doesn't it? Aren't there times where Ohio State does something offensively and you think, 
man, they set that up or boy, oh boy, they suckered him in and they did something to him. And sure, but, I but, feel but, like it happens less often with Ohio State's defense where you will see other defenses around the country, I think, that do it a little bit more. I think that's fair. I think the stakes are lower because when you if you go for it on offense and screw it up, maybe it gets picked off or something downfield, but the chances of it being six the other way are less than if you go for it and screw up on defense and leave them a hole that they can take advantage of. I think the stakes are a little bit lower. It's a different kind of gamble, but I think you're making a good point. I just think that there needs to be you know, they're just, it, it, I, I, they need to get everybody healthy. Once you get everybody healthy and get a better concept of who your best 11 guys are. Like I go back to 2019 and I don't know that I was like, thought that Ohio state, like just schemed the crap out of No, But they didn't have to, they, they didn't, didn't have, have to. to. Right. But even then, but even then when it was time to actually start doing it, they did, you know, Jeff Halfley started scheming stuff up in the big 10 championship game. And in the Clemson game as well, I think Kerry Combs hasn't showed it yet. And so right now I understand the idea of I'm going to put our best 11 on the field and let's see if you can beat us because quite honest with you for the next 11 weeks, most teams aren't going to be able to do that, but you do have to show that once you do get to a talent equated situation, you have the ability to scheme stuff up. And right now Kerry Combs hasn't showed it enough. And I will say, and I don't think it's desperate. I don't think it's bad. I just think we're still waiting, right? I think we're still in wait, mm-hmm. waiting mode for some of that. But to the point, the, the time that we keep citing, because it was like the only time practically that they blitzed, it really was quite critical. It's Minnesota's over midfield. The play before they had thrown a deep ball that was a half a yard away from being completed for a touchdown. I mean, that that play was there to Jackson deep and they just missed Minnesota Mm -hmm. comes back on third and six with like 40 something seconds left. And if they convert that third down, they're going to keep moving the ball and they're going to at least have a shot at a field goal to go up 17, 10 at the half instead of 14 to 10. And again, with some of the young guys in the secondary, they were going to take a couple more shots at the end zone and who Mm -hmm. knows what would have happened. And instead Ohio State dials up a two linebacker blitz and sacks the quarterback on third down. And the Minnesota's like, well, fine. Then we let, the, we let the, the clock run out on the half. Like that was a very meaningful sack at a key situation where Cody Simon didn't make some ridiculous didn't leap over six blockers. They just blitzed two linebackers and he had a gap and he finished it off. Credit to him. But it was the call. It was the call. And I think that's one, right? That's one. And and you notice that when it happens, I think I think everybody would just like to see that be four a game instead of one a game. And mm-hmm. we all know the more experience you get, you can't do it with young players. You learn your players better. I get it. But I think that's where we are in this process. And I think it's we would just like to see more of it. Let's finish off with C.J. Stroud. I asked Ryan Day a question I kind of been wanting to ask about. We know you like it when a quarterback throws the ball away, but how do you evaluate it when there's a throw that is there to be made and the, and the quarterback doesn't try? And Stephen Ryan Day said, you know, well, you, that's part of learning, but if you have a million of those, maybe you don't have the right quarterback. But he also said, I didn't think CJ did that much on Thursday, right? That he's, he completes 13 passes. There's not that many throwing opportunities. There was good and bad, but I thought, Ryan Day, a couple days removed from the start, felt seemed like he felt pretty good about 
the way CJ Stroud saw the game and processed the game. I think I agree with him. I just think the times he didn't were just so obvious, not really bad moments of the game when you needed it. It was a third down when instead he takes off, he only gets six yards and gets flipped on his shoulder, shoulder, or it's him holding on to the ball way too long and he tries to scramble and he just gets back to the line of scrimmage or the interception. That was part of it. It's not so much of, I don't know, if he had 30 dropbacks, it's not like he had nine or 10 misses. It's just the three or four he had mattered and they quite frankly, could have you missed out on big play opportunities because of it. And it's even more enhanced when your wide receivers are four or five, six yards open down the field. Just rewatching everybody. It's just there. There were a lot of guys who made more throws in the middle of the field in week one. Spencer Rattler made a bunch. Bryce Young made some. Bryce Young made some plays where for Alabama where he would get pressure, step up in the pocket, slide to his right, and like rip a throw in the middle of the field for a 14-yard gain, mm-hmm. which is just not really where C.J. Stroud was on Thursday night, which is fine, which is fine. Ryan Day in particular cited the throw, the, the route all the way across the field to Chris Olave, where C.J. Stroud had to get the ball over the linebackers who were dropping. You know, who am I to say? Who am I to disagree with that? I did think that those linebackers were dropping back to get depth on those routes, but they had a long way to go. And I almost thought that CJ Stroud like waited so long. He almost brought the linebacker into the play that if he had thrown it a half second earlier, Chris Olave would have had even more room, but Ryan day said that was a good throw. He cited that in particular as a good throw. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to try to vehemently disagree with that. But I, I just thought, Nathan, I thought in general, Ryan Day saw it with a couple days removed as the right first step for a guy headed in the right direction. I think that was, there's what we think, which is fine. We've all said what we think in the last couple podcasts. But what was your read on how you thought in the end Ryan Day thought his quarterback played? Well, I was intrigued. I wanted to ask Ryan Day today just sort of about the process, like what goes into this you know, you, the, the game happens in front of you and you make adjustments and you have conversations about what's happening during the game. And then as a coach, you go back and watch it. As a player, you go back and watch it. And then you probably have conversations at that point about what you saw, why you made this decision here, what, and then what happens next time? What, what would you, what should you have done there? And I'm, I'm just really intrigued by what we see, if anything, the progression of CJ Stroud from game to game. I think, you know, you get an idea of his baseline, probably his, his floor, from actually getting to see him play even against a defense like Minnesota. But I'm, I, everything that he's ever said about the quarterback position, he being Ryan day is that this is about the development and it's about what you do one game and then coming back and not doing the same thing, not making those same mistakes the second time around. Not that there won't be other mistakes because teams are going to show you different things. You're going to, he's going to be seeing things for the first time. It's a, it's a learning process. that's going to go on. But I think I, I, I want to see how CJ Stroud approaches attacking a defense differently than he did the first time around because I think this has been kind of the whole point all along part of our confidence in Ohio State still having a strong season regardless of who they picked was that Ryan Day was going to be there to help them through it and that's still part of the process that's happening 2.84 I think was the average grade given by the texters on the CJ Stroud question on the Buckeye Talk Awards B minus was the most popular answer. Um, no, 
I think B B was the most popular answer, but there were more B minuses than B pluses or something like that. But that the final grade when you average it all together came out to about a B minus. So I, I am just intrigued by as much as I was obsessed for two years with the risk reward of Justin, do you, how long hold the ball to make a play versus get rid of it and avoid a, a sack or whatever, but you've got to let Justin make plays. I am now very, very interested in the dynamic of it's not a mistake, but opportunities that you maybe didn't take because you weren't sure of yourself with the young quarterback. And right again, Ryan day said there weren't a ton of those. I thought I saw eh, two or three, maybe where it felt like eh, there, it looks like there's a guy there that the guy ran his route, turned around at the top of the route and is standing there. And there's a clear passing lane to him and CJ didn't throw it not a million times, but I, I am fascinated by that because at some point you've got to rip those. Right. And again, you can see what it looks like when guys rip them. Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler is the most disinterested quarterback I've ever seen. He looks like he doesn't even want to be out there. Sometimes he's like, I'm bored by this 50 yard touchdown. And so the next time he just like overthrows the same route for a pick, but he thinks throwing in a window, the size of a baby's face, like it's boring to him, but he will rip anything at any point. And now listen, he's been doing it. Bryce young did a lot of that. Bryce young was like, Oh, let me step up. Oh, where's pressure. Oh, that guy's open rip window. And I'm just, I'm, I'm very curious when we see, see, I mean, CJ's played one game, but that's, that's what I'm really curious to see with CJ Stroud, Steven. Yeah, I think there's a difference between – the key difference right now is just, there's holding the ball because you're trying to make a play, and there's holding the ball because you're timid. And C.J. Stroud was timid in the first half. And when, once he stopped being timid, well, they started ripping off 40-yard touchdown passes all over the place. I do want – you sent that t- you sent the awards out Monday. I do wonder, had you sent those awards out before DJ and Bryce got a chance to get on the, the field – where the, where our taxes would have maybe graded them and ranked them and, and whatnot. Because I think after seeing what DJ struggled with on Saturday night, mixed with what Bryce Young was able to do against a Miami team who was once again fraud, I think people have maybe a little bit backed off of CJ and, uh, and have come back to the reality of understanding that he is a first-year starting quarterback and things will get better. Once again, Miami is fraud. Stop ranking them so high. Ohio State was really out there for two days Mm-hmm. kind of hanging on their own and North Carolina looked bad. They lost on Friday, but in the end, Nathan, they're third in the AP poll. Right. And it's like, okay, Georgia's defense looked unbelievable and Georgia beat a good Clemson team and Bama steamrolled. But I think Ohio state looked like the third best team. Right. Which I think when you walked off the field on Thursday, I don't know that's where, where anybody would have been, but it's like, well, who do you want instead? Do you want Notre Dame? Do you want Oklahoma? You want Iowa State? You want Oregon? You want Texas A&M? You know who actually thought looked good was Cincinnati. So, I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I, it, that it, It's funny, um, but to your point, Stephen, that everybody kind of realized like, oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah. Other teams didn't look great either. Uh, just quick, maybe I'll do a poll on this. I'd say once or twice a month, I like to ask a question that's a joke. Uh, I feel like I've ha- I'm having less and less success with my joke question. But Nathan, I thought Ryan Day talked so much about the fact that they didn't run enough offensive plays. 
then they only ran whatever, 48 plays and really only 42 because one was like the last kneel down drive. I thought asking whether he's going to have Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson just take a knee after they catch a pass rather than try to run for a touchdown. I thought it might elicit like a funny answer. And he was like, shut up, Doug. I want to leave. Uh, should I stop trying? I think if you had been very early in the question queue, that might have been, it might have gotten you some back and forth, but you were asking that in like the 35th minute. And I think you're right. I think Ryan Day was like, uh, man, my, uh, my coffee's getting cold. Yeah. Let's get out of here. Yeah. There's this new thing where I think you and Tim go last all the time now. So, like, mm. well, no, Tim went first last time. So, him asking about Ryan Day's beard was okay. Oh, but right. if you would have asked it at the end of the thing, it's like, Doug, why are you asking me about this? We just got done talking about football. So maybe you need to talk to Jerry and get you and Tim switched to the order so you can go first and get your jokes off. I got crushed. That's right. In the joke question head-to-head so far, Tim May is crushing me because yeah. his beard question elicited beard stories on every TV newscast and every Ohio State website. And my joke question got the equivalent of shut up, Doug. He didn't actually say shut up. He was just like, oh, yeah. Uh, I'll keep trying. No one ever said that I was Tim May, but I will continue in that futile pursuit as long as I'm doing this. All right. Make sure you guys are uh, following us everywhere. That's text 614-350-3315. That's what else do we have? Oh, website, cleveland.com slash Buckeye Talk and uh, YouTube channel. So subscribe to that. We will have interviews with players and coaches Wednesday night, but I think we're going to do some other stuff probably for the Thursday pod. We'll see what that is. We hope you're with us for now. Thanks for joining us. For Nathan and Steven, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.